Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 103, Justice. With my customary greeting of joy and happiness, I, Ken Ray, welcome you to this edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And with my customary greeting of jogging and doing it, I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take apart an episode of Star Trek, searching for the messages, morals, and meanings, and trying to figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Sometimes they're pleasurable, sometimes they're painful, and sometimes, as the wise philosopher Freddie Mercury implied, pain is surprisingly close to pleasure. Will such be the case with justice? Keep us in your ear holes and we'll find out together. Can can I also point out that Freddie Mercury also said, gimme, gimme, gimme fried chicken? So, um... <laughs> but, uh, hey, don't knock Mr. Fahrenheit, dude. Believe me, I will not stop him now. Okay, good. Well, never mind. It's going to be a sad and a bad joke, but we will move no. on from that. So, yeah. uh, so Justice. Yeah. Yes. 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 I, I, I so look forward to this. Mm-hmm. And I think people think I'm kidding. Uh, they might. They might. They might. Yeah. You know, it, this is kind of like when we when we first started Next Gen, and people who would either talk to us in person at a convention or send us an email or be like, "Oh, hey, watch out because this episode is coming up," and everybody would name the episode that they thought was going to freak us out. And, yeah. And Code of Honor. Yeah. You know, fairly. Yeah, <laughs> but, they were absolutely right about that. Yeah, right, right. But in that long list of episodes, people saying, whoa, it, it gets kind of rocky from here. Um, I would say that justice was in that list. And, uh, yeah. and therefore, I'm looking even more forward to talking about it. Yes, yes. Were they right? Should we greet this with such trepidation? We will find out in a bit. But there's another TR thing that we do first, and that is trivia. John. Right. Right on, Ken. So um, we'll keep this one a little bit short because I think we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, the original treatment for Justice was written by John D.F. Black. Of course, we remember him as being a, a producer and writer on the original Star Trek. And um, it was truly an entirely different story, um, his first treatment, his first script. Um, it involved an Enterprise crewman being killed while protecting kids on the planet. Uh, and then you had the rise of a rebel force. And then that rebel force having just as harsh laws as the faction that they overthrew. It, it bears no resemblance to justice as we uh, are reviewing it today. Um, and John Black actually uh, went by his nom de plume of Ralph Willis uh, for his credit on this show. Now, um, some of the location shooting was done at the Donald C. Tillman Water Reclamation Plant in Van Nuys, California. <laughs> um, that facility opened in 1985, and it reclaims and treats up to 40 million gallons of wastewater per day for use in the surrounding communities. Uh, the site is well known as well for its Japanese garden, and uh, this is the first, though definitely not the last time, we will see this used as a location in Star Trek. So get use of that water reclamation facility. Um, I have to mention a few of the uh, guest stars and appearances here. Brenda Backey, um, I, I have to admit, Ken, to you and to the world, I really have a thing for Brenda Backey. I think she was fabulous and beautiful in Hot Shots Part Deux, 
Uh, she also played Lana Turner in L.A. Confidential and and let us not forget the 1989 classic Death Spa. Here's, <laughs> the, here's what uh, I will say about her. Um, mm-hmm. If back in the day, because I don't know what she looks like now, but she so could have played Bernadette Peters, younger sister. Oh, sure. Or, sure. Her, or her daughter yeah. in something. And, yeah. and I would have paid money to see that twice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe it's the also part of the the wig in this episode. The what? Uh, <laughs> Never mind then. Ah, uh, <laughs> crushed, crestfallen, heartbroken. Please continue. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, now there's not a whole lot of other breakout guest stars uh, on this one. Uh, there, there was the youngest Ito girl who befriends Wesley. Uh, that is Judith Jones, and she continues to work as an actor in TV film as of our recording today. Um, and, and it's funny. There was actually one kid on the set who may have had a crush on her. Um, there's this blonde kid playing one of the Ito wearing the little pink jogging suit and he's way, way off in the background. You really probably will not be able to see him, but uh, his name is Rod Roddenberry. Wait, what's his name? Rod Roddenberry. It's, wow. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you think he and the guy who created the show ever met? Cause that's quite the coincidence. <laughs> it is kind of amazing. huh? I found this episode torturous. The whole thing centers on something I've always wanted to do, but never can. Why, oh why, did there have to be so much jogging? Prologue. Arriving at the Rubicon Solar System after dropping off new colonists nearby at the Strnab system, the Enterprise investigates what seems to be a lovely planet, lush greenery, blue skies, friendly locals, very friendly locals, everything you might want on shore leave except for white rabbits and wayward samurai. Data is getting a glitch on his computer, but who cares? It's shore leave time, y'all. Picard even says Wesley can come along for this one. Act 1. On the planet's surface, the first away team finds the locals to be awesome, fit, friendly, and one might say frisky. Deanna says it all checks out. They're just happy and happy-go-lucky. They don't quite know what to make of Wesley since he's a kid and it appears the adults prefer to do um, adult things. No worries. Wesley can go off and play with the other kids. For everyone else, the Edo people seem to really have it going on. Their skimpy outfits, very clean rooms, oil massages, people making out everywhere, and jogging. Just tons and tons of jogging. Seriously, they jog everywhere. On the Enterprise, things are a lot less sensual, but just as exciting. That computer glitch turned out to not be a glitch at all, and a ship or something appears to fade in right in front of the Enterprise. Now, how about that red alert? Act two. So that thing hanging out in front of the Enterprise? Don't really know. It's sort of there, but sort of not there at the same time. It, it kind of looks like a ship or a space station, but no one can make anything of it until... A glowing orb flies out from the alien vessel and directly into the Enterprise. It's like a, it's like a basketball, but transparent, glowing, and has sort of a threatening attitude when it asks Picard what they're doing here. 
It wants to make sure that the people on the planet below won't be harmed and that none of the Enterprise crew will remain there. It also wants to know the purpose of leaving a colony on the other planet they just left. Picard, kindly but directly, explains that some of Earth's people like the challenge of setting up colonies elsewhere. Plus, it helps to propagate the species. The Orb is no longer interested in Picard, but seemingly very interested in Data. They have a moment of unspoken bonding, then Data is knocked out by the thing. Down below, Wesley is doing what all the Edo kids do. Jogging, gymnastics, explaining what a ball and a bat are. The other members of the landing party are getting to know more about the Edo as well. It gets a little weird when Riker can't reach the Enterprise, and they realize that Wesley is missing. This leads to a talk about crime and punishment and how there is no crime on their planet, mainly because the only punishment is death for any violation. Now, where was Wesley? Act 3. Oh, yeah, he's playing ball with his new Edo friends. No big deal. Running around, playing catch, and then he just happens to stumble into a planted area behind a low fence, and he crushes some new flowers. And that's an executable offense. Seriously? Seriously. The Edo mediators show up, and they're awfully sorry about the whole thing. But the kid did just violate a law, and he'll need to be put to death. So they do, and the episode ends. Uh, okay, not really. Riker, Worf, and Tasha show up, and they stop the mediators from lethally injecting Wesley. They still can't reach the Enterprise, though, and on the Enterprise, Data is still out cold. In an instant, the glowing orb disappears, and communications are restored. Something is up, so Picard is beaming down. Act 4, time for a lesson in Edo versus Earth law. They still have the death penalty, and Picard explains that we do not. See, we're so much more advanced. The Edo are suitably put off by the smug inference that they are not as advanced, but Picard is going to respect their laws and customs as best he can. He's bound by the Prime Directive, which means he can't just come in guns blazing and steal Wesley back to safety. While he's at it, Picard asks the Edo if they know about the object that has been hanging out near the Enterprise. Riven, the Edo woman who has had kind of a thing for Riker, knows exactly what it is. That's God. Okay, Picard's got a plan then. He beams himself, Troy, and Riven up to the Enterprise for a closer look. When she sees the vessel, she knows it definitely is God. And God gets a little teed off about this. The vessel starts approaching the Enterprise, and that intimidating voice demands that his child be returned to her planet. Picard absolutely complies by putting his comm badge on her to be beamed down at once. Dr. Crusher, who has so far been trying as hard as she can to get some word from the captain about Wesley's safety, leads Picard to sickbay where Data is again conscious. He explains what's going on. At the moment he was knocked out, the alien beings, that's plural, communicated with him and also shared all of Data's knowledge. The godlike beings are interdimensional, super advanced technologically, and they are protective of the Edo. And they totally know that they are worshipped. That's cool. They're protective of their area, too. The whole system in which the Enterprise has been traveling and dropping off settlers. The alien, aliens, are curious. And they are observing the Enterprise crew to see how this will all play out. Picard is still torn about the Prime Directive, and now he's got Big Brother watching him squirm. Act 5. Picard has a dilemma. He could grab Wesley and leave, or he could stay and let him be executed. 
That's clearly not a good outcome. But Picard is trying to understand what this alien observer expects him to do. If they understand the prime directive now, how do they reason it? And how do they think he'll act? At best, Picard would have to reason his way out of obeying their laws, while at the same time making a big deal about honoring his own laws. Time to beam down to Rubicon 3. Picard assures the people he is not a god, even though he has a rad spaceship. He's just there to use his godlike powers of negotiation to get Wesley back where he belongs. Picard explains that he is sworn to protect his crew, but he is also bound by a law that tells him he can't interfere. Well, too late for that. But if he does take Wesley away, then the Edo god may punish him and his entire crew anyway. The landing party prepares to beam up, Wesley included, but nothing happens. Seems that the Edo god is blocking the transmission since we're all leaving on a sour note. Hmm. Let's try this again. Picard looks to the sky, hoping the Edo god will hear him. He firmly states that true justice cannot exist where laws are absolute. That seems to do the trick. The crew beam back aboard the Enterprise, and they contact the Edo godship one last time. Picard concedes that they will remove the Earth colonists if that's what it wants. In a subtle flash, the other ship disappears, leaving Picard with the brief sign he needed. The end. Did he actually leave him with a sign? Well, they think it was a sign. They think it was a sign. See, this is a problem problem talking to God. Yeah. Little too subtle. Maybe a tiny bit. Maybe a tiny yeah. bit. I got to say, uh, you mentioned the uh, actors that had been in other things and, you know, the other mm-hmm. things that some of the actors had been in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really good to see Glenda the Good Witch back in this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the bubble. <laughs> really? the, just the bubble. Not It right. wasn't actually Glenda. It was, you know, sort of like how David Prowse played Darth Vader, but he didn't actually play Darth Vader, but he actually did. Right. Yeah, Glenda right. the Good Witch played, played, the, uh, played the godlike being in this, but she didn't yeah. really. It was voiced by somebody else. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Right. Quite the booming, booming voice. Quite the booming voice, indeed. Um, hey, wow, Wesley, smart kid. You know, he might be a young guy, but uh, <laughs> he, he speaks up right away that his custom is just to do whatever their customs are. Yeah, I'm not he, sure that he, that was so smart. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on what you're looking for, I suppose. And I know he, he sees all, all the very, you know, intimate, gentle hugs going around. He's like, yeah, we I, I, I do that. Please, yeah, please, and yet he, please, and, do I do that? And yet he lets himself go off and like, like play ball, right? Like if right. you were really smart, forgive me, I'm just going to be that guy because I've been mm-hmm. a 15 year old guy. If you were really smart, what he would have said is, no, 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 I'm just young. I mean, I, I just, lo- I just look <laughs> right. young. I'm I not, just look young. I'm yeah. not young. No, I just, I'm from a different part of their planet. So, mm-hmm. so take me to the best part of yours. I'm going to beat up on Wesley for a second here, just a tiny okay. bit. Okay. Yeah. When I go to people's houses, as I often do, and uh, and break things, as I often do. Mm-mm. I apologize for breaking whatever I broke. I've actually got a little patter now because I do it so often. <laughs> okay. If somebody asks me if I'm okay, I'll assess my situation and answer accordingly. But my default position is, sorry, I broke your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that thing happens to be. Not acting in some pressure, though. Because they're like, oh, you stepped on the plants. And he's like, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, does. but the plants. And he's like, no, really, I said I'm okay. And it's uh, like, okay, is your nickname Plant? Because nobody is asking you whether you're okay. We're all worried that you're going to, 
No, mm-hmm. that the that the half Edo, half Kryptonian guards are going to uh, come and kill you, which which they come to do. I will also yeah. say really quickly, and this is less about beating up on Wesley. Crappy place for teens. This planet oh, this is like a horrible place for teens. Like so, the adults all have sex, and the kids all act stupid. <laughs> right. Like, right. So I don't understand how to play. How do you say ball? Is that <laughs> is that what you say? Right. The two options are you know ball, as in you know play with a ball, or or doing it. As, as in you know, ball, I guess. I don't know. I, it yeah, it strikes me as yeah. not the not necessarily the. Uh, I don't know. I would expect maybe more of a range of activity. D and D that might be fun. <laughs> Video they, they games have limited. They have limited options. Yeah, they haven't even evolved to stick ball yet. We're seriously just up to ball, right? On, right. On right. And the occasional cartwheel or you know hand walking. Well, and then the other kids say to Wesley, like, hey, you're really good at this. It's like good good at ball, good at at jogging lightly and And, and throwing a ball. And what what does Wesley say? Oh, yeah, we play this all the time back home. (laughs) Yeah, because it's true. I will say I have an affinity for playing ball. It used to be I had a friend with whom I used to write years ago. And that Mm -hmm. like one of our our, our two key tools were a computer Mm -hmm. and and a handball. And we were, you know, back and forth to trade ideas. But, you know, it was pretty I, – I feel like we had evolved a little bit past just the – oh, no, ball is it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's it's the end-all B-ball. Oh, okay. But it, you, know, you do have to wonder how this whole world works. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I know that you and I, uh, via Mission Login, because it's come up before and we will continue to come up, is like this idea of how do we get toward the perfect society and do you actually achieve that and what does that perfection mean? And, yeah. and the Edo the seem to have it, mm-hmm. um, at least as far as they're concerned. And, and you can parallel this to the Apple. Like they've got everything they need and it, they're all fit. And they're all happy, mm-hmm. and things are looking good if you're an Edo. But who's doing all the manual labor? We don't you know. Well, we don't know how much God is doing for them. True, true. And, it, and you have to assume kind, of, assume, kind of like the apple, that this God is sort of doing everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Except for the part where well, I don't. I mean, we might want to come back to this. I don't know. We don't know mm-hmm. whether God set up their whole you know, rule of, okay, so there's a moving target and that moving target is the protection zone. And if anybody breaks the law in the protection zone and you never know where it is, mm-hmm. then, then, you know, then that person gets killed. If, if they happen to do what they're doing wrong at a time that happens to be covered by the law, mm-hmm. otherwise it's just, you know, whatever you can get away with. Or of course, nobody tries to get away with anything though, because it's not like, oh, pay $50. It's no, you're dead. Your dad, if yeah, that happens. Right. But we don't know if that came from God or if that came from the Edo. We don't know really where that – there's a lot that we don't know about the God thing here. But yeah, I, yeah. I would say manual labor, uh, the sense that I got that there, there there wasn't any because then, you know, there's not nearly enough time to play ball. <laughs> right, right. Or, or whatever other activities they might want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which then kind of – well, and this might lead into a very different discussion is sort of, well, what is the point – of that God doing all of that just to have things worship it. I, you know, it, it raises a lot of good questions. Uh, it does. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. actually, honestly, what it reminded me of, and this will blow people's minds, uh, BAM. Mm-hmm. It, it was very much BAM, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they, they were there to study that and, and they thought uh, Kirk, Spock, and whoever, um, I don't think McCoy was with them, but BAM was certainly there with them. They thought they were mm-hmm. all there to study mm-hmm. the, the race that was down on the planet. And it turns out BAM was studying them, studying the race down on the planet. 
in the meantime, there was this godlike thing that was, you know, sort of overseeing the whole deal, but we never really got what their point was either. It was just, hey, these are my kids, so take off, take a yeah. hike, right, get out right. of here. I'm protecting them, or yeah. or or doing something. I, we'll we'll call it protecting for now because mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. what we're given to understand. Um, can we also point out that because um, I, I feel like it's worth <laughs> discussing, if at least just for a moment. Everyone is really gorgeous. All mm-hmm. the Edo, the men and women, they're, they're absolutely these perfect specimens, beautiful bodies, you know, all stunning to look at. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really white and really, really <laughs> blonde. <laughs> and I'm not sure that this is an intended message at all, but it is kind of striking. You know, we, we talked about how part of the problem with Code of Honor was not the story necessarily, but it was the trappings of the story. It was the, the reliance on this all-black cast, and then you, you present them in this sort of bizarre view of colonial, uh, the colonial view of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like this just sort of stood out to me, like, wow, they, they are, wow, they are not just white, they are super white, and they yeah. are super blonde, and there is absolutely no variation on Yeah, except, except for the all. brown eyes, they were practically Aryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is, yes. Huh. And, and this sort of is the implied vision of perfection, as far as our crew are concerned. It's supposed to get there and go, wow, this place is perfect. Uh, except they're all white, <laughs> you know. This yeah. is kind of kind of strange. Again, I, I don't think it's like an implied, or, or I know that this is an explicit or a, a planned thing here. It's just sort of in retrospect, you go, oh wow, is that really the best casting choice? It's don't know. Definitely, I, I think it's not a casting choice that would be made today. Nope. Um, I mean, you can try to go in and say, well, they're growing a race, and so they start with the same stock and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something you would have to call it on if it were being made today. And honestly, yeah, probably yeah. something you should call it on in 87 as well. Although I can't remember. Well, yes, of course I do. Um, I was going to say, I can't remember when we started seeing uh, interracial relations on television. But there was a show called Star Trek in the 60s oh, that did have right. a guess between a, yeah. between a white yeah. man and a black woman. And certainly mm-hmm. there had been plenty of other times since then. Heck, Sammy Davis Jr. kissed Carol O'Connor on, uh, no? on, yeah, on, yeah, on yeah. All in the Family. And that, that's way going, although I don't think it was a serious kiss. Well, and, and he kissed Nancy Sinatra, uh, actually predating Star Trek. But uh, that was a sort of a friendly, like a thing. There was no context of mm. romance or anything there. But uh, that's really interesting. I, I I must confess, I I totally missed that, and I'll offer justification later for why I missed it. But I'm ashamed mm-hmm. that I missed it. You're right. There should have been. Um, yeah. All no, right. it's just interesting that it it, it wouldn't. As we're saying, it wouldn't necessarily be cast that way today. No, and, I don't think it, uh, I don't think there's any way it would be cast that way no. today, unless it were going to be a plot point. Otherwise, mm-hmm. yes, there would be. You would you would see a multicultural or at least multi ethnic um, Edo. Although, um, again, science fiction wise, is there any reason to assume that that would be there? Well, I I, I don't know. I honestly, I think this is something that we will come back to in. Other Star Trek episodes, yes. because as a listener pointed out to us in, uh, in a piece of email, we do have these so often in Star Trek where you have a monoculture mm-hmm. where you've got, okay, the Klingons are warriors because they are all warriors and all Klingons are warriors all the time. <laughs> right. And the Ferengi are the scheming, profit-driven you know, bankers and traders of the future because that is all they are and that is all they do. Right. So we have very little variation when we step out into other cultures and, and that 
then puts all the the work on our cast, our crew to present those varying points of view. Yeah. Um, it's so really, it, you know, it's yeah, interesting because I know, I know this was sort of a throwaway idea that you were presenting here, but it almost feels like it should be in the next segment because you're right. All of those races tend to stand in for one of the things that we don't like about ourselves as humanity or one of the mm-hmm. things that the people writing the story for Star Trek are saying, this is something that we as a people living on 20th century Earth, as this was written, um, this is something that we as a people need to work on. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and and they either start with an idea of perfection or they start with an idea of flaw. And yeah. so you're right. Presenting the idea of perfection as as um, as as blonde and white and super fit. I mean, that, right. is, that, that is it raises um, it raises questions. If you watch Star Trek a little too closely, which I know a couple of guys who do. <laughs> um. Hey, let's talk about this uh, this perfect vision here, this perfect society. In this vision of the future, um, in our vision, capital punishment is gone, as says Picard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yay, good on us uh, for getting rid of that. But, but he also says that we have learned to detect the oh. seeds of criminal behavior. You're jumping way ahead, dude. Yeah, we really need to talk about what we're going to talk about someday. Yeah, let's stop right there, please, because we got to come back to this. All right, we will. All right. right. You want to talk about the line that you hate? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Go ahead. Well, no, you do it. Traumatic reading. No, that's you. That's you. Okay. Yeah. So, so, um, or what are you making this up, John? I'm with Starfleet. We don't lie. Thank you. Thank you. And I wasn't Um, there, though. There are those who say that his nose grew one inch longer that day. I, I, it's it's it's, it's yeah. There's no lying. It's it's a little too earnest, but you know that's a that's a that's kind of a thing. I I, I do have another question about moving the show along. Mm-hmm. Should they really have let Data just do an open information exchange with an alien race that they know nothing about? Oh, they didn't have any choice. Sure, they did. Well, what uh, dismantle him? No, no, <laughs> no. They no. They absolutely had a choice. Uh, when when the thing was talking to Picard, and then it turns around and, and like looks at Data. Mm-hmm. Data says, "I don't really know that I understand, sir, but it seems to ask if I am, you know, set up for information exchange." Mm-hmm. And it's just hanging there, waiting for an answer. And Picard says, "Data, if there is any way you can find out more information." And then Data says, "Yes, sir." And then the bubble hits him in the head. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's actually waiting for consent. Is there no, I mean, shouldn't there have been like a, well, let's think about this for a second, because you, you've got what? Oh, yeah, that's right. Almost all of the information that Starfleet has. And he is what? We don't know. Yeah, tell him everything. <laughs> I'll be mm. right here. I mean, that, that's, well, going to, that's going to include how to disable the shields on the Enterprise. It's going to include how to, you know, set a warp core breach. That's going to include everything about defenses all throughout the Starfleet and the Federation. I mean, it, sure. it really it, it really struck me as maybe something that they wanted to talk over just a tiny bit more before. Well, Wesley's down there, so I guess give him anything he wants. Uh, well, I, I, calculated risk, I think. I mean, <laughs> at, that, at that point, at that point, their their hands are kind of tied. Kind of. Here's this thing that could destroy them anyway. Right. So if the only option is share as much information as we can with them and hope that they see that we are okay mm. and that we, we do have a, a certain rule of law and we do have uh, good intentions, then hopefully they are advanced enough to understand that. Um, I, I really don't think they had any choice. Well, you know, they, they may have had a choice of you know shutting off data or making data not 
share any information, but that could have just as easily antagonized the, the godlike thing and it blown them out of the sky. You know, I almost feel like there is no part of this show that should not be in the discussion section because everything mm-hmm. that seems mm-hmm. like it's something that we're just going to throw away actually feels like something that we should discuss. What the, what the godlike thing in the sky is trying to figure out is whether or not we are going to live by the codes that we're supposed to live by or that we say that we're going to live by. And we don't mm-hmm. know that mm-hmm. yet. We don't find that out until a bit later. But it already shows that it's not going to come and kick the door down by the fact that it is sitting there waiting for Data's permission to exchange mm-hmm. information with it. So at that point, you could try talking to it. Yeah. As I mean, and not Picard necessarily. And certainly the, the godlike thing wants to get more information from Data because it wants to it wants to eliminate that whole okay, well, he said this, but when he said that, did he really mean this or did he mean that other thing? It's going to be much easier just to get all the information that you want. It's going to be much easier to you know, find a way to quickly absorb all of that information and to quickly give that information to someone to be absorbed. Again, though, I'm not sure that strategically it, yeah. <laughs> it was necessarily yeah. the best thing because, I mean, now you've got like another, well, however much longer we do uh, next gen, of wondering, you know, I wonder if that guy remembers that, you know, we blank. I mean, we've got, I mean, it, right, it just, right, it just right. struck me as maybe, maybe a little overshare, I guess, mm. <laughs> in the parlance of these days. Well, uh, in the future, if the present is any indication, Ken, may, maybe in the future, there, there is maybe more of a blurred line in, in what is private and what is public. <laughs> so they might be struggling with that on the enterprise. Um, hey, Data uses one of my favorite lines. Which one? Now, he, he says a little bit differently, but any sufficiently advanced technology oh, yes. is indistinguishable from magic. He's quoting Arthur C. Clarke. Um, well, he's paraphrasing uh, ironic- Arthur C. Clarke, as you said. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Ironically enough, because, uh, hey, he's a robot. So, kind of cool. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, Are they, wait, I, I don't understand the robot yeah. thing. That's Asimov, right? Oh, wait. Oh, I'm confusing Clark and Asimov. Yeah, yeah you're right. right. It, it happens. Yeah. No, it happens. It happens. It happens. Yeah. But no, Arthur C. Clark wrote that line. And he's yes, he did. Technology. He's indistinguishable from magic. And yes, Data did paraphrase that. Yes. Because um, he's a magic man. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm going to go down a whole other path <laughs> Go here. on. Just go on. Um, I, I like to think that uh, Picard isn't just beaming down to save Wesley, but but also to make sure that if he's going to be executed, then uh, he'll be awake for it and face it like a man. You know? <laughs> oh, oh, that's so awful. Because Crusher could come down and say, well, I'm going to give him a sedative and, you know, he won't notice and he won't know Picard. No. No, that's absolutely, him, that's terrible. Face it, yeah. And, uh, and by the way, uh, if we've learned... <laughs> at any point, you know, here again, Picard missed the opportunity when Riven says, you must be gods. And Picard says, no. Ken, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. Someone should seriously do a new soundtrack for this episode. All alto sax and keyboards all the time. You know what I'm talking about. Don't even pretend you don't. So I have a suggestion for, for this uh, for this next part of the show. Okay. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> this is a this is a um, borderline <laughs> porn-tastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just it's like forgive me, and I'm just gonna go ahead and admit stuff, whatever, because I'm a 40-something-year-old guy at this point, and yeah, I was a younger person in the 80s. Uh, the first 
three minutes of this episode are like the first three minutes of almost any late 80s porn. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, it totally is. <laughs> it, it really is. You know? Scantily clad people running around. Somebody comes, like, shows up in full uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there will be no clothes relatively soon. Um, it's kind of a, it's, 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 it's like an overly, I, I can't remember if you used the term porn-tastic or if somebody else did, but it really does. I mean, it just, it, it reeks of, 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 of late 80s porn. Yeah. At least the look of it. At the same time, yeah, though, Bill yeah. Tice, I mean, shining through, I actually stopped to make sure that he was the costume designer because Shades of Andrea and mm-hmm. uh, everything that Ido were wearing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, so that that is the look of the show. Yeah. And, and the setup is, uh, it, it, it throws you off, I think, because this is not <laughs> Star Trek that we have seen before. Yeah. Um, well, we've seen plenty of scantily clad women in Star Trek before. Well, we we have, but the context here is very different. You yes, know, it th- is. this is one of the first times that we are talking frankly about sexuality here and acknowledging the sexuality of the characters in the show, other than just Kirk sort of being this you know, swaggering, macho guy. Um, This is something that we know that Gene Roddenberry wanted to address uh, among all other earthly experiences in Star Trek. If if Gene Roddenberry is doing a show that tries to explore all aspects of humanity, then sexuality is one of those aspects of being a human being. And it's stuff that maybe you could only hint at in the original series. Mm -hmm. And you could only, you know, come right up to that line and not really cross it. And we got a little more of a hint of that in the motion picture with Ilea. Um, This was a character who was intended, had she been on uh, phase two, to be from a culture where, you know, again, we talk about the monoculture and, uh, and that kind of defining the alien races here, but their sexuality is a defining thing about her race, Mm -hmm. uh, her species. Um, The Deltons. The Deltons, yes. Yeah. But but here in this show, in this episode, we have a culture in which their their sexuality is discussed right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it throws you. It, it does. And I don't I don't blame our audience for being thrown by that either, you know? Um and it, it's not just the sexuality of the Edo that's on display here that makes it a little weird. We see a bit more of the progressive attitude in the Enterprise crew as well. From the moment they beam down, Riker is checking them out. And so is Troy. And she's a little, she's a little maybe not nervous, but a little weirded out by it. But uh, Tasha's, she's already made a friendship, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and well, it's all presented as being all right. Yes. And and we, we even get those lines like, when in Rome, and Riker is just all smiling Happy Riker, and he even asks Worf, but what about just plain old basic sex? <laughs> you know? So as if this is a uh, just a perfectly normal option for him, and especially a perfectly normal option on this planet. And I kept thinking, wow, th- this is like Logan's run, <laughs> just <laughs> all over again. Yeah. Except without people dying at 30, I hope. Well, you hope, although, yeah. again, we don't know about this God thing up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that well, there was one thing that I thought of in defense of this episode's focus on sensuality, and I hate to mm-hmm. even say in defense of it, mm-hmm. but I know that and I know that it, it's part of probably what throws people off about this episode, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show was broadcast in 87, right? Yep. Okay, so we're six years at this point into the AIDS epidemic. 
when yeah. when yeah. sex has actually become a fairly scary thing and not mm-hmm. not like so scary that nobody's doing it anymore but scary enough that you know you, you're not going to have things like studio 54 going right. on at this point you're not going to have things like um like the like the bathhouses in uh, right. in uh, San Francisco as you would have had leading into the AIDS epidemic um sex has gotten a little bit scary so it must have actually been kind of fun to leave that by the wayside when mm-hmm. writing about the future and you know there is a history of uh, let's say lascivious characters and societies throughout science fiction mm-hmm. uh, like some of Heinlein's, Heinlein's stuff uh, mm-hmm. reads mm-hmm. As, as both incredibly sexist and incredibly dated yeah because of the inclusion of things like free love and the way some of his characters you know interact right but it still might have been refreshing to see you know some people who don't have to worry or who no longer have to worry about um uh, doing it yeah well and like i said that that applies to the Edo, but it also applies to the enterprise crew i mean i think that's what's so you know we you go back to a tos episode like um like shore leave yeah. Okay. And here's the beginning of McCoy as this sort of ersatz ladies man. Yeah. You know, he, he he figures out what's going on, and I'm like, I'm not just going to have one showgirl. I've got two showgirls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can make this whatever <laughs> I want. So yeah. Get, so guess what a, I want? Yeah. 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 You you get a hint of that, but now it it's even more so normalized yeah. for this crew. Right, um, which, is, which is a, which is a really neat idea. I mean, I'm, don't misunderstand. Mm-hmm. I'm not making fun of the Heinlein thing. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I don't like some of the wording that Heinlein uses sometimes, but I actually am about to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> don't know that I necessarily see a problem with the kind of society that he envisions. I'll put it that mm-hmm. way. There are mm-hmm. lots of, and we talked at the very first episode of this show that we ever recorded, not the first one that we played, but the very first episode of this show that we ever recorded was a mock time. We talked about the fact, or at least I put forth the fact that one of the biggest problems in the episode was the fact that we don't talk about sex, that yeah. we that we sort of yeah. repress a lot of a lot of our, not only a lot of our desires, but actually just even talking about it. We don't talk about it. And by the way, I'm going to head off an email right now because there is one guy, and I know him. <laughs> there is one guy right now who is writing an email upset that I said doing it. Mm-hmm. And I need him to know that that was actually supposed to be the start of a of a, of a joke where I was going to do like five different names for 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 having sex. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <'Cause, laughs> okay. So I want him to I want him to just yeah. you know, like stop with the clacking of the keys right now because yes yeah. I'll I'll talk about having sex I'll talk about making love. Mm-hmm. Um. I I I I was I was saying doing it because it was going to be followed by all kinds of euphemisms. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> good. That joke's yeah. over now. So I'll try to work them all in later. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it, suffice to say that the, this is not the depiction that you would have gotten on Star Trek in the 60s, but this is also not the depiction that you would get of sexuality in Star Trek now, now, now being early 21st century. It, it, it's this odd little... Oh, I don't know what? that I agree. I don't know that I agree. Really? Well, really? it depends on who's writing it, and it depends on what you're trying to do. This mm-hmm. goes back to the debate that you and I were having about Star Trek Six. If you are starting from a place of, I want to show where I think society can go, where society could go, and then we're going to work through the problems that we have today in the form of some other society, mm-hmm. then it's quite possible that you would have this. Um, it depends on it depends on the starting point for the writer. Now, if mm-hmm. you're assuming that we're going to make the Federation of the 24th or 25th century just sort of an analog of our society – 
which yeah. is not what the first season of Star Trek uh, The Next Generation was doing. Sure. Um, if, if you're going to make it an analog to our society, then you're right. It would be a very different telling of sexuality. But if you're going to have somebody who's going to say, all right, so what does the Bible say? The Bible, I mean, the Star Trek Bible, that is. Mm-hmm. What does the Bible say? The Bible says uh, society is awesome at this point. Then really mm-hmm. they're going to bring their ideas of, of sexuality and how you will present it um, to the table. I, yeah. think, I think it depends yeah. on which Star Trek you're writing, honestly, or, or from, which, from which angle you're writing the Star Trek that you're writing, whether this would be how sex would be presented or not. Mm, okay. Uh, I'll concede that. Interesting idea. Um, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit from the sexuality to talk about the other big issue here in this episode. That would be the Prime Directive. Yes. Um, so we, uh, we discover, kind of, this new planet, and we just start beaming people down. <laughs> Uh, without knowing anything about them. <laughs> then we break their rules, and yep. then we worry if we're going to break the Prime Directive that we already broke. Yeah. The Prime Directive uh, forbids the Federation and Starfleet from affecting the development of society. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. But, you know, showing yourself to them is no problem at all. And letting them know that, yeah, we get a starship, we can fly around your planet, and, you know, we could probably blow this place up if we wanted to, and I'm just going to mm-hmm. beam over here now just to prove that I can. But I'm not affecting your society at all at this point. We're, you know, we're just chatting. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. It was, it, was kind of a, it was kind of surprising. Because one assumes that they didn't even make radio contact. Yeah. Because yeah. one assumes they don't have radios. They just showed up. They were just beaming on down. Oh, there's lots of thin air. Lots mm-hmm. of life forms down there. Oh, well, should we, should we you know, take a closer look and disguise ourselves a la um, Return of the Archons? <laughs> should should right. we you know maybe beam to a part where uh, there aren't many people around, a la Private Little War? Mm-hmm. No, no. Let's just go say hey. We're, we're, <laughs> we're tired. We just planted a colony. Uh, I'm so tired. <laughs> right, right. So, um, so then we get ourselves into a Prime Directive conundrum here. Okay, and um, and, and you you've got a couple of things to to weigh out once Wesley is uh, accused of committing a crime and and admits to committing a crime, mm-hmm. and then we realize that the punishment is death. And um, it, and I thought the struggle here was played out really nicely uh, because part of what you have going on here is asking if the the emotional bond of family, whether it's the family of just. Uh, Dr. Crusher and her son or the family of the crew outweighs the logic and and obviously the good intention of the prime directive as being a non-interference uh, clause here. And meanwhile, the Edo god, gods, are judging how we behave in this crisis. And I had to wonder, you know, would they not also judge how a mother reacts to the threat toward her son or how the commanding officer in this case reacts to the threat of one of his crew. Um, Picard even says to Data, look, the prime directive was never intended for the situation that we're in right now. Uh, You you and I both wrote down this line um, where Data asks, would you choose one life over a thousand? Right. And uh, and Picard replies, uh, I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that. So, Picard is conceding here that this might be exactly the right time to violate the prime directive. He is fully prepared to do that. He tells Crusher, whatever the cost, I will not allow them to execute your son. 
Funny how we played up to that, uh, up to that moment, because Crusher keeps trying to get his attention. <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, wait, uh, my son. No, not now. Not now. Yeah. <laughs> you keep thinking the first time you see this, is he going to address this? I hope because we're talking about her son. Yes. Um, there, well, I mean, there there were two things that were that reminded me of Spock in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Eh, mm-hmm. Apparently not when it's Wesley. I mean, it would be it, it would be I would be curious to know if it's a red shirt if it were a red shirt down there. Yeah. And I'm not saying this specifically about Wesley. Maybe it's if, if not if it's a child, or right. or what if it's just a child that Picard knows and not somebody else. I mean. It would certainly be a morale killer if after this episode they're walking around below decks going, wow, so did you hear about the captain? Yeah, they caught one of us, and he just let him kill him because he yeah. wanted peace. Okay, well, that's yeah. kind of bad. At the same time, there's a fantastic, and and I'm way, 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 way jumping the timeline, but it was absolutely a fantastic moment in um, Star Trek Into Darkness when they're trying to decide whether or not they are going to stop the volcano and save, oh, spoiler alert, mm. whether or not they're going to stop the volcano and save Kirk, and Kirk says... On the bridge of the Enterprise, standing there with McCoy, um, if Spock were here, what would he do? And McCoy says, he'd let you die. Yeah. And the thing is, he would, but he's a Vulcan. And he's also a Vulcan who's not terribly familiar with Kirk at that point, and that's a whole other thing about that particular telling. But, right. I mean, it's a really, so yeah, not only violating the Prime Directive, but even going against logic at that point. Yeah. Because he is, he's going against logic. Everybody on the Enterprise could die. And yet, what kind of captain would he be if he... If he let one of his group people die, he runs as much risk, I think, of losing the Enterprise if he lets somebody kill one of their guys as he does saving the guy and then, you know, trying to fight um, God or something godlike. Well, Picard says, you know, my law compels me to protect my crew. You know, that, that is first and foremost. But the other law says that he cannot interfere with another culture. So right. he, he's, he's bound by the two things that should, in that case, have equal weight, unless we're just saying that the prime directive is prime because it's more important. But, yeah, like, like you said. Well, it, it is talk, called the prime directive. It is. It is. <laughs> but, but talk about a morale killer. If you just go around That's letting true. people die because, oh, well, I couldn't get out of that one. <laughs> you know? Maybe we should, you know, one less counselor, one more lawyer. You know, so uh, we can actually argue this, you know, and then right. look, look for the clause, look for the loophole, see what right, you can find. Right. There was something that this episode made me think about, uh, about, you know, rule of law and, and extradition in particular. Do you remember years ago, uh, the kid who was traveling in Singapore, he was a, a U.S. citizen and he got arrested for chewing gum. Yes. And he was caned. Yes. A, a very harsh punishment, something that we absolutely could not compre- comprehend doing here and um but then you know we have a very different attitude when someone from another country commits a crime on our soil and it made me kind of question how the future of compromise works you know here in star trek we have this vision of a united earth um where there is a, a respect and a cooperation amongst different cultures and I ask myself if we reach a point globally where we can agree on what crimes are okay as long as they're 
you know, committed in other countries. Would it be okay at some point in the future if, you know, a woman from a Western country drove a car in a conservative country in the Middle East where women are not allowed to do that? Um, would it be okay at some point for an American kid to chew gum in Singapore because we decide globally that some laws only make sense contextually? And that's the interesting argument here in this episode is saying that the laws are no good if you don't understand their context, if you just let the absolute rule of law be absolute and nothing else. I, it made me think of the uh, Steve Martin joke about proposing the death penalty for parking violations. You know, <laughs> no, one, no one would break the law because why risk death? And if you do, well, too bad. Um, but there, there's no room in the Edo Code for accidentally breaking the law. You know, if you or I were speeding in our cars, we might be doing so accidentally. Mm -hmm. and, and even though it doesn't, it doesn't allow us to just get off scot-free from paying a fine or, or whatever the, the level of that punishment might be, but we have degrees of crime and punishment. We have degrees of murder by which one punishment may be more severe than another based on the intent, based on the context. Um, so there you go. There's my monologue of uh, what uh, what kind of thoughts that sort of put into my head. Yeah. Well, no, it's. I mean, it's. It's. Mm -hmm. It's. I don't really have much to add to that. It's all very interesting. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. it, the Steve Martin joke is is kind of a funny joke, but it's also, I guess, kind of true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a bad mm -hmm. idea. Don't mis don't misunderstand. I, I like the version of uh, of the twenty uh, fourth century they're talking about where there is no. Um, death penalty at that point yeah and you know send your letters that's fine that's just, that's just <laughs> where i happen to stand and i don't i i i don't always know honestly how i feel about it because there are some things that are so heinous and grievous that i you know being uh, still just a couple of steps from caveman um do occasionally think oh but that one oh but that thing so you know mm -hmm. I, ideally i would like to think that, that you know that we get past that um, I don't, I don't know though. It's, it's such a, ooh, ugly, hairy thing. <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, it, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, mean yeah. to boil it down to that, but I mean, it seriously is. It just makes me, I mean, the whole, that we still argue about it makes me ill. I, well, this is, yeah. not, this, this is actually a conversation probably for offline at some point, or if somebody sure. wants to, you know, corner me at a convention, then I'll, <laughs> I'll gladly talk about it too, but it's probably not for here because it just goes into, goes into other things. I have a question about how we dealt with the um, with the god things in this episode. Sure. Um, did we back off of the god things in this episode because what we did was wrong or because we fear them? And when I say back off them, I mean, well, I used Bem earlier. We were fine leaving those aliens in Bem under the care or tutelage of the godlike creature because we were under the impression that the godlike creature had put them there. Data is willing to say that it's possible that these things that are watching over these creatures uh, put them there. He's willing to say that maybe they're growing them, but yeah. he doesn't say it categorically. He can't seem to say it categorically. Um, Kirk, as you mentioned, you mentioned the apple earlier, young James T. Kirk probably would have done something to try to free these people, quote, free these people, quote, free these people who apparently don't have to work. 
who go around getting laid all the time just because it's fun and why mm -hmm. wouldn't you mm -hmm. um or playing ball i mean it depends on their age level of course right uh, he probably would have done something to try to free them he would have figured out a way to to have blown that ship out of the sky. Yes, or yeah. into whatever other dimension, you know, just solely yeah. the other dimensions that it's in and not this one. Because right. they don't seem to be an evolving society. They don't seem to be an evolving race. They don't seem mm -hmm. to be making or producing or struggling or anything. So I'm trying to figure out, like, like what is our stance with this, with this particular godlike entity? Are we afraid of it? Are we fine letting it, you know, grow these people? And, and, and also the part where... Data says, so in talking to the alien things, um, it turns out they think they own this part of the galaxy. And at the end of that, we're mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, well, we'll get out of this part of the galaxy then. Okay, we'll try that with the Klingons. Try that with the Ferengi. We ended up with a neutral zone with the Klingons, right? Because it was war. It was that yeah. or war. Did the Klingons try just saying, no, this is our part of the galaxy? Because apparently what the Federation does at that point is like, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. We thought it was open space. Guess not. We'll, we'll pick up our things and leave. Well, let, let's take that them analogy one one more time here, because okay. in, in that episode, you had the, the godlike thing saying, these are my children, I am protecting them. And if we look at the, the Edo god slash gods as being this really, you know, benevolent, protective force mm -hmm. with a childlike race, uh, as uh, we described them in the episode, the experiment may be... You know, maybe the, the Enterprise crew showing up is exactly what they needed because the experiment may be that they evolve to a point intellectually, politically, socially, where they aren't relying on simple black and white measures of understanding concepts like justice, like rule of law. You know, that that may be exactly the catalyst that they needed for this now. The godlike creatures may not have appreciated that it was us and that we're <laughs> encroaching <laughs> um, and we're violating our own prime directive by being there. Um, but, you know, data points out that the Edo god creatures are reasonable and they are rational and they were like us. So they, there is some common ground for understanding there. Um, Picard just wonders how much they will be able to reason like we do. So, um, yeah, if we look at this just as the experiment that the Edo God is presenting to these people and being protective at the same time, like that godlike creature in Bem saying, these are mine, everything's fine, back off. Mm -hmm. And unlike James Kirk, who would have blown it out of the sky, Picard's like, cool, we will back off because we have that mutual respect and understanding. But today is a new day for the Edo. Because the Edo at least can start to understand the subtlety in the difference of breaking a big law and breaking a small law. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the death penalty not being the sole answer to everything that crops up. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Uh, I guess the only thing I would argue is uh, Kirk wouldn't do that because in Bem, Kirk didn't do that. It almost seems to be a difference of... Well, I mean, you could certainly just say it's a difference of the writers and their opinions. But if you yeah. want to try to if you want to try to make the whole thing work with those two uh, seemingly opposed Kirk beings, maybe it's a difference of how the people got there. I mean, we decided mm -hmm. that the feeders of Vol at one point, you know, built Vol so they wouldn't have to worry and ended right. up where they were. Uh, whereas in Bem, we got the impression that she was actually she, the godlike creature, uh, was actually um, growing 
the race of lizard people into into something better. I actually mm. had to go back and look at stills from that because I couldn't remember what kind of people they were, but they were mm. lizard people. In case you're wondering, so <laughs> right. So 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 there's that. Um, yeah. There was another question that I had about about um, why we colonize. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought that was so interesting. Uh, Picard describing to the Edo god how and why we colonize other worlds. Well, let's say, first of all, let's say what he said. Life on our world is driven to protect itself by seeding itself as widely as possible. Okay, so that's our stated reason for colonizing. Yeah. A, a biological imperative to protect right. the species and, and propagate it throughout which, the, which the galaxy. Which, I gotta say, at some point, really can't be your reason anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you, when you got so many planets that you're on, when you got so many planets that you can have a failed colony, and it's not even the biggest news in the world, right? The only way we mm -hmm. know about it is because Tasha Yar's there. When, 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 when colonies have gone so bad that you can just be like... Well, that one didn't go so well, but thank goodness we got all these other ones. I yeah, think you kind of yeah. got to let go of the whole biological imperative thing, right? Right, right. So there are other reasons. Yes. And the other reason seems to be that people are unhappy, that that Picard is indicating that there are people who want a challenge yeah. to create a new kind of life for themselves yes. elsewhere. Yeah. And this is fascinating because, remember, we're talking about the perfect Earth or more perfect Earth of the 24th century where we've eliminated hunger, we've eliminated war, we have fantastic technologies, we have starships, we can go anywhere that we want in the galaxy. And yet there are people who would rather fight and struggle and, you know, grow crops on another planet. Yes. Wow. Um, so, 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 like, the Earth of the 24th century is practically this side of paradise. Yeah. Uh, Omicron SETI 3, is that right? Yeah. 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 So the yeah. Earth the Earth of the 24th century is practically Omicron SETI 3. Without the spores. And there are people making the case that Jim Clerk made of thinking, mm, I, you know, I just don't struggle enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Things aren't mm -hmm. tough enough for me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go someplace where I have no food replicators and have to grow invasive plants. Well, we're, we're back to an argument then about, uh, you know, the nature of happiness. And, and the thing is that I, I think the problem we run into is that is a different answer for every single individual to whom you pose that question. Mm -hmm. There are people who living in 21st century America, where arguably we have an abundance of resources and we have more opportunities than some other parts of the world, but they would rather be off the grid and roughing it somewhere in the mountains growing their own food and and living in a filthy shack because for them they want a different kind of experience than what the city or the suburbs offers uh, no judgment from you a filthy shack how about just a rustic shack would that be okay, okay? rustic All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. i know you can't get a perfect martini up in the mountains dude but come on you let's can't. be a, let's be a little less judgmental is that really that's it really because i yeah. thought it might be the filth <laughs> Well, that too. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. like filth in my martini. Um, I don't blame you. I like a dirty martini myself, but that's a little bit different. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, every individual and then maybe smaller collectives of individuals. We have people here who have started communes of, of various sorts because they want a different kind of life mm -hmm. than what they perceive they will experience by living, let's say, conventionally. You right. Know? And this apparently now is something that has not changed in the 24th century as well. And not only can you not easily do it, you can't easily do it on Earth 
<laughs> you got to go elsewhere. You got to go clear across to another solar system mm-hmm. to get this kind of life that you want. So you have this double-edged sword here. The problem is you have to ask the question of why. What, why does that happen at all? What is the unrest that is making people do that? Um, but then why are we not able to address that as, as an advanced culture? Well, I mean, we are still sort of uh, colonial a bit, right? I mean, you can say mm-hmm. it's propagation of the species, or you can say that it's just making sure that the Federation has a big enough footprint so that if something comes along like the Klingons or like the Ferengi, you know, mm-hmm. that, I mean, we, that we have staked our claim. Yep. Um, I mean, we may not actually... It's, it's the whole thing that we've talked about before of... Well, I mean, it's self-actualization in a way, I guess. If you want to be... You want to be a pioneer on this planet. You're right. You can go live off the grid as best you can here, but you're going to be doing it in some, you know, bit of protected land. You're mm-hmm. not. You're not going to be able to do that in some place that, that you know, where nobody's laws can reach you. Now, granted, right. if the Federation is helping you or the Starfleet is helping you uh, set up a, a colony, then you're still not beyond the reach of law at that point. But you are a bit more on your own than you ever would have been before. Yeah, I'll tell you honestly what I would like to see, and maybe we should call our friend. Um, Larry Nemechek. Mm. Ha- has anybody ever written, like, you know, so you want to start a colony? <laughs> has, <laughs> has anybody ever written the, the sort of the, the information packet that you get as a member uh. of 24th Century Earth thinking about the exciting and rewarding possibilities of moving to Omicron SETI 4? Saying, right. well, no, right. there's too much radiation there, plus there are no spores to protect you, so maybe some other planet. Yeah. SETI Alpha 7, perhaps. Ooh, that might ooh. be a good place to Beautiful go. Beautiful this time of year. Any yeah. number of places that you could set up a colony. I would love to see the ancillary material for that. And uh, mm-hmm. and, and if, if anybody listening does research and finds out that there isn't any, oh, you just found your way into the Star Trek universe, my friend. So uh, <laughs> Lord knows I don't have the time to do it. Um I will say we do get another heaping uh, helping of 20th century barbarism versus 24th century enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Last week it was uh, we used to kill animals for food, but we don't do that today mm-hmm. um, in the 24th century. Uh, this week we used to kill people as punishment or as a crime deterrent, but uh, we don't think that that's right or necessary anymore. And, and certainly, I mean, there are lots of people who are amazed that we still have the death penalty today. And mm-hmm. and I think people do assume that one day, well, some people, maybe 50% of the population assumes that one day we're going to get past killing people as punishment. And then, yeah. you know, there's another part of the population that doesn't necessarily think that. What this actually, though, really got me uh, thinking about, and this is where I stopped you earlier, mm-hmm. um, Picard says, okay, so we, so we, uh, we used to kill people, but now we don't. And and the Edo says, yeah, but, you know, when you did, didn't you think it made sense? And Picard says, well, yeah, but we've learned to detect the seeds of criminal behavior. Yeah. All right. Stop right there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Follow-up question. Uh, so what do you do when you detect those seeds? I mean, we know that they're not killing those people because they no longer have the death penalty. I mean, are they are they locking them up? Are they... Are they scrambling their brains? Say, can it, can it, have you met my friend, Dr. Tristan Adams? I was going to say, do they have like a, you know, 10 list device Mark 8? Or do they just have like a, like, like some of the meanest of the mean Vulcans come in and scramble people's brains? I mean, what's happening here? Something about that really worried me. I thought it was kind of uh, an indication of something very dark. It's, but maybe that's just my imagination. Though, no, right? what I have here in my notes, actually, I love yeah. the near utopian future that Next Gen presents. But that throwaway line has the potential for something truly menacing, <laughs> truly menacing at the core of this future. Because it's like, 
yeah. So so now we figure out who's undesirable. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Well, mm-hmm. no, I shouldn't say we figure out who's undesirable. We figure out undesirable uh, traits about those people. Yeah. And, 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 and then what do you do, Captain? And change them. Well, yeah. you see, he didn't say that. No. We, we, we don't know. I mean, these could be the colonists. Hey, Seleucus Secunda is not going to... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's the Dune reference for this week, by the way. It's not going to populate itself. Seleucus Secundus, excuse me. Anyway, um, it's yeah, it, it it did strike me as fairly menacing, and I I do kind of wish they had pressed uh, Picard on that, but I think at that point he would have just said, "What's that behind you?" And then you know, six to beam out. <laughs> Besides Commander Riker's permanent grin, and acting Ensign Crusher's newfound respect for gardens, what can we take away from the episode Justice? So I approached this episode um, the way I approached Spock's brain, with a tremendous amount of trepidation. I, I wouldn't say that I was afraid to do this episode because I'm much less afraid of sort of like taking the wind out of a out of a first season next gen episode than I was taking any wind out of any episode of the original series. Except of course for Cat's Paw. <laughs> what I'm trying to figure out now though, having watched this a few times for this show and after the conversation that we just have had, excuse me, why do we hate Justice? The episode Justice. And and I wanna stop before you even get the answer and say you and I don't hate justice. No. But this episode lives in everybody's minds as as Drek. People remember this as a bad episode. They don't even remember Code of Honor, but they remember justice as a bad episode. Right. And I'm trying to figure out why, because this is actually – there's – I said when we were doing the part that's normally just for throwaway comments – it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like there's a throwaway comment to be made about this, except for the fact that the kids play ball and that's all they do. That's like yeah. the, that's like the worst part of this episode. Everything else about this episode is just is just incredibly rich and incredibly full, and it will be mentioned as one of the episodes that people can't stand. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out why. Um, from a production point of view, I think there might be people who immediately get turned off by the look of it. it yeah. It's a very dated looking episode and it was probably dated looking at the time. And it's a little silly that you have people in these cut out pink jogging outfits jogging everywhere. And there's a lot of blonde hair and a lot of skin. And as I mentioned before, Star Trek is a show that and let's remove just the, the production kind of uh, uh, maybe shortcomings for a moment. Mm. But Star Trek is a show that up until now has gotten very close to the line of addressing things that have to do with sexuality. And then it doesn't because it really can't. There are mm-hmm. a lot of things that are inferred, but you can't really go beyond that. You I, know, I have the, green memories. <laughs> well, it, it, remember, the only thing that we ever saw of Kirk that indicated that he had actually done anything was him putting his boots on Yes, after an encounter with Dila. And also him telling that woman who was hitting on him, we could make some green memories, which is a euphemism for we could, you know, have yeah. sex. And yeah, Kirk yeah, yeah. says, I have green memories. I mean, it, they, yeah, they, they, yeah. they never say anything about sex. 
Right. Because right. they can't, as you pointed out, because it's 66 through 68, 66 through 69. 69. Yeah. 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 So. so for the first time now, 20 years later, mm-hmm. we get something that's really in your face. And, and it, it, it looks and feels... Use a feels, different term. Please use a yeah. different term. <laughs> yeah. But we get something that looks and feels very different from classic Star Trek. Yeah, that's true. And, and we're also, I think, trying to find the footing of this cast and, and crew that makes Star Trek. There's some unfortunate stuff in here. Wesley having that line about... Um, I'm you from know, Starfleet. We're we Starfleet. Don't we don't lie. Yeah. That's just... It's a nonsense, terrible line that is filled with bad logic. And I wish that line didn't exist. But that's one line yeah. out of a show that then handles so much else. Mm-hmm. The, the, this this episode is so rich and so dense with topics for discussion that are so purely Star Trek um, that I'm I'm really other than the, other than the look, the style, and the maybe uncomfortable look at sexuality. Those are the only things that I can really kind of put my finger on to say this is maybe why this episode is reviled the way it is. I don't think there's an uncomfortable look at sexuality here, though. I think people are uncomfortable with sexuality, especially here in the States. Well, that's what I meant. I didn't mean that the the episode is uncomfortable. The episode is very forthright. It was very forthcoming about looking at human sexuality through the eyes of this experience with the Edo culture. Yeah. Our crew is totally fine with it. Yes. So I mean, you know. so I mean, but that feels like an important distinction. It's not an uncomfortable look. An uncomfortable no, no, look no, no, is yeah. like, you know, on a very special episode of Family or right, something right. like that, <laughs> as right. opposed to, right. as opposed to this is just like you know, First Officer's Log. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much you know. I mean, he's they are not uncomfortable at all about it. Honestly, the one who seemed most uncomfortable about it was Deanna. Uh, and maybe just because she had not been down to the planet before. I mean, who right. knows how uncomfortable they were, you know, Riker and and uh, and, and uh, Yar were when they first beamed down. Uh, Jordy, I was say, not, Jordy, not uncomfortable at all. I was going to say, Jordy <laughs> comes back all smiles. Jordy yeah. is so happy about having been on that first, you know, that pre-away away team down to the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there there seemed to be very little discomfort uh, among among the people telling the story. But you're right. You know, people who are watching it may have been uncomfortable either because um, either because of the fact that Star Trek has never done it before or just, you know, that's 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 who we tend to be in the States. That's who a lot of us tend to be in the States anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's it? Do you, do you think that's the if not the only at least the primary reason that this show gets so much derision? Well, I mean, I, I used the term porn-tastic earlier and it mm-hmm. certainly is. I mean, it does. I mean, it does, as you pointed out, have a very dated. And I wish I wish we could be better. Honestly, you and I, I wish we could be better about sort of uh, pulling the story out from the production side, because I think there are episodes that one or both of us have said in the past doesn't hold up because the production kind of gets in the way. And I, yeah. and I, I, I would like to not do that quite as much. Right. Um, the story, it's the parts with Wesley are really bad. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. I mean, what's going to stick out in your mind is the jogging porn stars and, mm-hmm. and, and the over earnest uh, delivery of certain lines by Will Wheaton. Right. And maybe that's why it survives. But yeah, if you go back and watch it, I mean, maybe that's why the derision of the episode survives or is so so prevalent. But if you go back and watch this episode, like for for the Star Trek parts, yeah, yeah, they're I mean they're all over it. So you and I already have addressed um, 
you know, why other people probably don't like this episode. And then we ask each other if the episode holds up. Well, well, you and I are both saying that we both really like this episode for a mm-hmm. number of reasons. Anything else you want to add to that about the episode holding up? It gives you so much to play with. It gives you so much to so much to explore. It is it is again. Wow, have we actually talked about the Prime Directive in these first six or seven episodes now more than they did in the first two seasons of Star Trek, the original series? I mean, this is a real examination of who we are. And even if they don't come up with the same answer every time, they are examining who we are and who we want to be and and how we're doing along that road. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would like to think today that we are... I can't imagine that there's a country out there that's fine going, nah, we're, we're, we don't even want to be the best. We're just, you know, we're okay just being okay. Okay, maybe there are countries out there that, that are that way. We, are, we, we have this idea in the States, and I'm not saying it's not true necessarily or whatever, and don't, you know, get angry. We, we have this idea that we're the best country on earth. Mm-hmm. And whether we are or not, to examine that is an important mm-hmm. thing. I mean, you, you have to be willing to look at yourself and decide whether those things, the things that you believe about yourself, you have to be willing to look at it and decide whether those things are actually true. Or you should anyway. Otherwise, you're just going to end up believing something that's not necessarily the case. That's one of the things that's so fascinating about Star Trek to this point. They are constantly checking themselves yeah. before they are wrecking themselves. <laughs> I mean, There's no way you couldn't, right? No, I mean, yeah, they're, yeah. Constantly, they're, constantly checking their, they're constantly checking their work. They're constantly checking their steps. They're constantly checking their motivations, yeah. which is yeah. fascinating. Not to the point of paralysis, though. I mean, they're, right. they're still out there. They're still doing it. They're still exploring. They're still, you know, somebody gets in trouble. They're going to try to help them. But, but always with an eye on, okay, well, what, what does this mean? What does this action mean? If I take this action, you know, what, what, is, what is the equal and opposite reaction that might be the result? It's, it's turning out to be it's, – it's honestly going to commendable a lot sooner than I expected. Yeah. Next Gen is already showing up with some, some amazing storylines that could, that could go up against maybe not the absolute best that the original series has to offer, but I would put some of the stories that we've already hit among – at least some of the some of the some of the morals or some of the ideas the things that we are here to talk about uh would go up against a lot of the original series episodes already I, I like what you said about the this show and and this episode in particular uh kind of nailing that about examining humanity and examining life the, the unexamined life is not worth living well the, this the, this is a series and this is an episode full of examination of what we're doing and why we are doing it so mm-hmm. um i i have to i really applaud the people who made this particular episode for going out of their way to depict a couple of things in in the course of a you know 48 minute tv show intended for a wide audience they depicted a, a sexually progressive or at least a more sexually progressive culture than we would usually get on TV, mm-hmm. something that sparks a conversation. Um, and these ideas that challenge the, the, the whole concept of, of interference and, and rule of or respect for a law. These are big, heavy topics, and we got to do it in an entertaining fashion. Um, we talked about the things that are dated. Yeah, there, there are production aspects that are dated. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you know what people uh, could do actually? What's that? Uh, like, like you suggested with Code of Honor, close yeah. your eyes. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because, but but here's the thing. But, but you've got Wesley, and and part of the problem true. is that if you hate Wesley, you're just going to hate Wesley, and and there's nothing that you can do about that. And if you're listening to it, you're going to still hear that awful line. That's true. You know. Yeah, but that's um, not that's not his fault, nor is that Will Wheaton's fault. That's just no, it's just no. a bad, 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 bad line. Yeah, and, yeah. and I also feel like that if you. If you do just totally shut out the visual, then you also lose a little bit of that. I think there's something positive to the almost shock value of just seeing all this flesh on screen. This is a <laughs> is a marked difference between the tightly buttoned up uniformed crew of the Enterprise and suddenly they're in this other place. It's like, oh, look, it's like the Apple. These people are half naked all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's a point to that visual being the way it is, even if we can look at it in retrospect and go, eh, it's a little dated. We wouldn't do that necessarily now. Yeah. You know? um, so it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, I, I, I like the location shooting. Um, I'm glad that we got out of the ship in a, in a cool looking location. Um, but to me, this is a fantastic episode. It's full of ideas. And I think we've run a little longer than our usual recording and we could probably keep going on this one. Um, yeah. And if the audience has a little trouble getting past the skimpy costumes and blonde hair and, and miles of flesh and Wesley, that's too bad. Um, for me as a science fiction fan, I kept thinking about other stories that touched on this, not just Star Trek. We talked about the Apple and we talked about Bem. I mentioned Logan's Run because it's another thing about a a dystopia that has this element of it, of looking at human sexuality and looking at rule of law. Um, and I thought about the time machine, the Edo being very much like the Eloy in that. Um, so, yeah, if you're a fan of Star Trek and if you're a fan of science fiction, I really feel like this needs a second look. But it needs it needs a thoughtful look if you yeah. can get past just the visuals. Yeah. I mean, it, it, asking the question of does this episode hold up, I would say story wise. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, resoundingly. Uh, Production-wise, yeah. I mean, as you say, the looks might be a little different this time. I mean, you would certainly mm -hmm. have a more multi-ethnic uh, Edo population, and mm -hmm. you, you, you also, you know, wouldn't have, you know, somebody look like they just come off the set of the video for Let's Get Physical. Right, right. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's that that and the uh, that and the unfortunate Crusher line, or about the only, or Wesley Crusher line, excuse me, or about the only about the only ways that you can. Uh, you can fault it, I think. I mean, it. I, yeah. I, yeah, I think it. I think it absolutely. Yeah, I think it absolutely holds up. How about messages? Because I feel like there's. Oh, I don't think there were any. Sadly, <laughs> no. It's just fun to watch people bounce around on screen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> we. I mean, I, I don't even know how. I don't even know how to lay them out exactly because there have been so many that we've hit. I mean, there is the constant thing that you and I have come back to both in the original series. I'm sorry, not both in the original series, in the animated series, and a few times already in Next Gen of being who you say you're going to be and you know i mean i love the fact that the that the that the edo you just said i mean they gave picard a way out you know yeah. they're like yeah. okay so you're powerful yes okay so here's what you're going to do you're going to come in by force you're going to take the guy i'm going to write it down as nothing we could do and we're going to move on and picard's like yeah but you see i told some people that i was going to be this way so i'm going to go ahead and be this way and now it is it is interesting that at the very end he did i mean he he was like, okay, well, that's what I got to do, unfortunately. And now I, I yeah. will have to live with the consequences of that. Luckily, he was able to talk his way out of it for both his ship and his crew. But, I mean, the, the fact that it might doesn't make right as far as Picard is concerned. There's a place for might. 
you might actually have to go you you might have to flex your muscles sometimes mm-hmm. but that's not that's not step one yeah. and, it's, and it's also worth noting although i guess tasha and and Worf did pull the phasers on the guys once they were trying to kill wesley right, right. but they didn't immediately call up and you know say oh they got a death penalty here so send on some shuttles and some more security dudes i guess they couldn't call either so maybe they would have had they been able to that's maybe i'm going a little farther well, no, but that could have been, you know, from Picard's eyes, the, the long-term ramifications of doing something like that. Like, yeah, he could get Wesley out of there, and he understood that, and the Ito understood that. But then you destroy what could potentially be a longer relationship between the Federation and this other culture, even if it's just from the point of view of study and understanding. You, know, you absolutely destroy all of that because then you leave on this sour note where well here are these invaders and they mess things up and then they took off we're never going to talk to them again <laughs> you know well, I, I guess it is worth noting too though there is the godlike thing up there that just by talking to them can shake their ship so yeah, I mean, he's got yeah, a couple yeah. he's got a couple of good reasons for being as he says he's as he says he wants to be partly because he said he wanted to so he needs to try to be that guy but then also because well, something might swat his ship out of the sky if he right, doesn't actually right. do what he said he was going to do or try to do it anyway. Right. I thought it was funny that at the beginning of the episode, they run through the planet's customs and, and the pros and cons in about two minutes. Yep. <laughs> you know? And, and then they are just done. And yeah. uh, it made me think, well, you, you know, you really can't get to know someone, much less a whole planet, that fast. Um, you need to maybe not judge this book by its cover and let your desires get ahead of you. Everybody was very gung-ho about going down there. Yeah. And uh, a little a little more careful study would have uh, well, would have benefited everybody. Um, uh, jogging is good for you. I, I think we cannot come away from this episode without learning that lesson. And honestly, but, it's, it's uh, never stated exactly, but being more open about sexuality. I mean, we've talked about this in a number of episodes in the past. Yeah. Being more open about sexuality. I mean, it's just, I don't, I mean, it wasn't really even a message. It's just sort of refreshing to see mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah. instead of saying things like, you know, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. And instead yeah, of being, yeah. you know, quiet about what your desires might be or, you know, things like that, it's just like, hey, you know, it's fun. <laughs> let yeah, me tell you right. oh wait better still let me show you <laughs> right and, you right, know right. obviously in a i mean this is a science fiction setting that we're talking about so it's definitely much more safe the social norms are very different and all that stuff but you know starting off by being a bit more open about it mm-hmm. uh, would not necessarily mm-hmm. be the worst thing in fact there are plenty of people who would argue put your keyboard down <laughs> there are plenty of people who would argue that it would actually be a beneficial thing for uh for any society that still sort of got its hang-ups sure sure uh, we, we have here Star Trek what uh, doing what Star Trek does very well um, and very often. Uh, we, we've got another Eden that isn't an Eden, um, though it's pretty close depending yeah. on your point of view, and it's pretty close until we messed it up. Um, there are the the familiar Star Trek statements about blind faith. Uh, the, this time you had blind faith in the law, and that kind of made me remember the ambergris element, our, our old friends, the Aquans, with the ordainments from the animated series. They were so forthright and, and dedicated to their laws that they couldn't see the element, the, the, the benefit of bending that when they needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have the blind faith element with the, the god, the Edo god here um and picard kind of pulls the rug out from under that too by exposing riven to this thing in the sky and uh that could have gone much more horribly 
until he beamed her down. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we have, we have Star Trek here in this new series and, and we're only, you know, a half dozen episodes and painting a more detailed picture of the differences between the 20th century and the 24th century. If we learn that meat was murder an episode ago, here we learn that there's no death penalty, although we still question that um, that, yeah, that yeah. whole idea of stamping out criminal behavior before it happens. Yeah, yeah, a little weird. Well, he didn't say they stamp it out. He, we don't know what happens. They, oh, they, we, they oh, do something. Yeah. We, we, we've learned to identify that. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, well, good. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as what we do, we don't talk about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so much rich stuff here to talk about. And, and I would say that all of that holds up certainly to discussion and further study. So, uh, bravo. I think what we should do actually is invite other people to uh, join in the discussion. Don't you think? I would love it if we did that. Yeah. So I'll do that part. Uh, okay. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter is where you can uh, just hop right in. Handle in all three of those places, Mission Log Pod. You can, of course, call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Uh, we have a website for our show. It is missionlogpodcast.com. We are also uh, easy to find now at trekmovie.com. And um, we are now part of the uh, Trek FM a uh, group of things. Do you call it a family? Do you call it a network? Do you call it a uh, a collective? <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> Trek.fm is the place to find that. Uh, remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And John, I know there is another place that you would like for people to check out online. Yeah. You know, uh, for those of you who are just tuning in now, uh, we are Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, in case there's any question about that and uh, we want to encourage people to go to roddenberry.com uh thank you obviously for checking out our website but we are part of this whole big roddenberry family and one of the things that i particularly like at the roddenberry.com website is the shop because they have cool stuff <laughs> they have cool star trek stuff uh props and costumes and books and accessories for your car and just all kinds of rad star trek things that you and i need to own so roddenberry.com when you have a moment it's so interesting to me that you call it the roddenberry family because i call it the collective <laughs> <laughs> just as appropriate yep yeah so uh, that is our, well, we didn't really fight. We didn't really contest each other on this one. That is our examination of this episode of Star Trek. But next week, oh yeah, the battle. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. My favorite line in this episode of Mission Log, Miles of Flesh and Wesley. I'm pretty sure they were a goth band. And Transmission.
Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today, because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.